Welcome to the official Solaris podcast. I'm your host, Steve Foley, alongside Eric Wilt in our mobile production studio. The goal of the podcast series is to further promote engagement and discussions around a broad range of relevant industry topics. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. It's Steve Foley here at the Petaluma headquarters uh, office. I'm uh, joined with Rene uh, Cervantes and also um, Eric Will. It's uh, another one in our series of podcasts. Welcome, Rene. Hey, thanks, Steve. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. Eric, how are you today? I'm doing well. We're in the, we've taken over the client services office in Petaluma. So that background noise you hear is our IT servers blocking out those phishing scams. So you know, Eric thought <laughs> it might that, be annoying, but it's, it's doing its job. You know, it's keeping us safe. Absolutely. Eric uh, thought that, you know, as we're entering the holiday season, um, the release of the podcast might be a, a good opportunity for folks to tune in as you're, uh, you're doing a little bit of uh, travel and maybe even a little bit of Christmas cheer shopping, uh, whatever it is that, uh, that you do out there over the holiday period. The Slayers podcast is series. fun for the whole family, let's, let's be honest. Let's, fun let's call it what family. it is. That's right. So today we just wanted to tee up a conversation with, um, with Renee. Um, most everyone in the Solariverse has uh, talked to Renee at some point in time, and if you haven't, it will come along soon. You'll have an opportunity to shoot the breeze with um, uh, Renee and his team of uh, maintenance uh, folks here at the company. I just wanted to start off with um, maybe the folks that don't know you, Renee, or even those that really do. Uh, you're a near plank owner here. I, I, I would call you a plank owner at Solaris. Yeah. You're coming up on 10 years. 10 years. Uh, Where did that in, time go? In February. Where did it go? That's right. You know, um, you obviously uh, you did some things uh, prior to uh, ten years ago, mm -hmm. and uh, I thought you might share a little bit about you know your background, where sure. you were raised, and um, how you got started in the life. Sure, I don't know if anybody can tell by my accent, but uh, <laughs> my background. Uh, I grew up in Chicago. Chicago is home. Uh, I grew up in the East Pilsen neighborhood uh, in the seventies uh, and eighties. Uh, went to high school in that same neighborhood, and uh, eventually found a way out of there. Uh, so that's home. That's uh, that's sort of a little bit of my background there. Um, I got really interested, Steve, uh, in mechanics at an early age. Uh, my my dad, my brothers were all construction guys, and uh, you know, as as it happens, right? You you're going to remodel your home. You're going to do some of uh, home improvement. You get stuck as a young kid um, in it. I hated it. I couldn't stand it. Uh, and I but I noticed that every time I helped my older brother change brakes or troubleshoot his car or whatnot. I really enjoyed that and I really sunk my teeth into that. Uh, as I got a little older, I got into high school shop classes and um, really gravitated towards that end. Um, I was never a really good student. That's gonna surprise a lot of people. I was a solid C minus student. I mean, I just enough you to get by. You did what it took, right. like the rest of us. Um, got out of high school, didn't have a whole lot of direction. Uh, was trying to get into an A&P school that was backlogged for two years. Uh, so I just went uh, to the local JC and just took some general ed classes, hated that. Uh, did some work for my, uh, for my brother's construction company, hated that. And uh, I had a lot of friends that joined the service right out of high school. So about a year and a half later, I enlisted in the Navy and uh, shipped off in, uh, in 92. And that was the beginning of my aviation career. 
I think we discovered some years ago that um, we may have shared at least may, perhaps not the same deployment as um, Eric and I figured out that we were on yep. the same vessel. Great to meet you, sir. I got you. Yeah, I landed both of you guys. There you go. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think great. we certainly sailed uh, similar seas at the yeah, same time. Yeah, we know a lot of the same, same time, people. Right? Uh, I was pleasantly surprised to uh, meet uh, Shifty Pierce uh, in person only to find out that he's in my cruise book uh, of 1995. Is he really? Yeah, he was the XO of the ship. The infamous uh, so, <laughs> Shifty Piers, yeah, XO yeah. of USS yeah, Lincoln. Small community, but that was my start, Steve. Um, I was assigned to VAQ-135 up in Whidbey Island, working uh, Prowlers, which is a derivative of an A6. Uh, I went in uh, without a designation, uh, gravitated towards power plants and, uh, and systems and uh, really sunk my teeth into it. I really, I enjoy, I love what I do. And um, finally I had something that can really sink all my, uh, my time and energy into and uh, served in the Navy for close to seven years. Well, thanks for your service. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for your service. A lot of milestones there. And for those who don't know, uh, you know, going into the fleet undesignated mean that Rene didn't have a job necessarily when he went to the fleet. That's right. Yeah, so. That's right. I was what was called an undesignated striker. Yeah. And Just the a, program was to there's take There's some a, risk there. There's a lot, there's of, a lot risk. of risk. The program yep. was to take a young kid and essentially expose him to every element of whatever command he showed up at with the notion that you would get to pick uh, what you wanted to do, avionics, uh, electrical, or whatnot. The reality is, hey kid, we need you over there. Yeah, <laughs> see that deck plate over there? Yeah. Get off the wire brush. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. You signed Which, up before. Come on down here to the folks with the chips and paint. You know, but, but the biggest misnomer there from a lot of folks is that um, the guys, they did it to themselves, they pigeonholed themselves in that, if you were designated in power plants, people thought, well, hell, all I'm gonna do is work power plants and work my minimum hours and do do what I need to do and be done. I was the guy that came in at midnight and helped the uh, corrosion control guys uh, paint the side of an airplane because I wanted to learn how to paint. Uh, I was the guy that helped the, uh, the avionics guys load pods because I wanted to learn a little bit about what they were doing. Electrical, environmental was pretty boring. Uh, ordnance, forget it. I didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Well, United was not going to be loading bombs on any <laughs> on any uh, airplane anytime soon. Yeah. It didn't really matter to me yeah. then. Right? Yeah, but I uh, I kind of nerded out on all that stuff, and and what I ended up doing was I learned a little bit about everything, and then sort of continued my education uh, that way. So. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds very much like it set the foundation for uh, what you do here at Solaris. It, it really did. Um, it, it really did. And I want to share this with you guys. We're, we're talking here. Um, you know, part of what a maintenance supervisor does is you're sort of a project manager and a project lead in many ways. When I was in high school, I had an awesome shop teacher that basically, looking, looking back at it, it he, he took boys and turned them into men. And one of the things he did is uh, every year we would buy a shop vehicle mm -hmm. and we would slap an overhauled motor in it, uh, fix all the drivetrain and all that fun stuff, put a price tag on it, sell it, buy some jackets for the guys and fund a, a field trip. Well, I got to do that twice with a couple cars as, as the lead, which means you got to go out and source the vehicle. You got to figure out what it's going to take. You got to source the parts. Mm -hmm. you, do you, do you install a crate motor in it or do you overhaul it? Uh, do you go with a set of overhauled heads? Do you go glass pipes all the way back? What are you gonna do with this thing? How much margin can you make, right? So it's a real project. Real project. And that was a, a junior year, senior year project that I got to take part of. And I learned a tremendous amount from that individual, from those projects, and I use that today. 
when we look at what we do. Yeah, that so, hands-on, right? Yeah. And those decisions, yeah. they, they help in, in today's environment. Yeah, much it, it's, back and, then. and honestly, I mean, not to take off on a tangent here, but I think oftentimes, I do this with my own kids, we worry about and focus on the academic. And the reality is, you know, I have a daughter that loves environmental studies and, um, and the uh, hatchery program at our high school. And I see the same passion uh, that I had for auto shop I see it in her, she's putting that into this Enviro program, which is phenomenal for her and it's, it's, it's worked wonders for her. Um, I think oftentimes we, we tend to focus strictly on the academic. There's some real, real cool vocational avenues out there for young people. Yeah. Um, they can sink their heart and soul into it. It's and, great and to see them get out. It. Yeah. It yeah. really is. Yeah. You know, your, um, your time post Navy, but um, prior to Solaris, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Whew. Um, before I joined the Navy, I was making about $15 an hour doing some construction work for my brother. Uh, a lot of odds and ends, a lot of rehab, a lot of remodeling and so forth. When I got out of the Navy and took my first job, I was making $12 an hour as an entry-level AMP. <laughs> uh, there you go. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> Young kid, no commitments, 15 bucks an hour yeah. in the early 90s. Not bad, right? Not bad. That was uh, a pay raise from the Navy. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, no, no. Getting out of the Navy was, uh, was, uh, was a little hairy. Um, you know, I did the uh, early separation. I banked a bunch of PTO and uh, separated about two months early. So I had a full-time job before my last day of service, right? Um, I forget what they call that program, uh, but uh, essentially that's the way it worked. Um, terminal leave. Terminal leave, terminal leave. yes, terminal leave. Um, I went to work Sounds for- like something everybody wants to do. Yeah. <laughs> they name it that so you stay in. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, you know, the military back then and even today, they weren't all too interested in greasing the skids for people, especially um, people in aviation to get an AMP license or an FCC license and go get their second career going, right? Mm -hmm. They wanted you to stay in. Yeah. They did a lot of prep work to get you out, you know, how to interview, how to, you know, wear a suit and tie, how to shake a hand, etc. But they didn't want to put an AMP uh, license in your pocket so you can just bolt out of there, mm -hmm. right? So getting out of the Navy, and again, this is early days of the, the internet. The internet's crawling, it's available, but it's not what it is today. I basically, I basically got a job at a very, very small, it wasn't even a certified repair station, just a small repair agency at uh, back in uh, near my hometown of Chicago at Aurora Airport, uh, working on old King Airs, Lears, uh, Falcon 20s, and old Gulfstreams. Um, it took me about a year and change to get an AMP license to figure that track out, get signed off, and, and do all the uh, orals and practicals. Got my AMP license in the early 2000s. Um, stayed with that company for a little while longer and eventually moved on to a company that was a uh, very traditional mom and pop brick and mortar charter management company. Uh, that was in 2001 um, and, and that provided me an opportunity to learn more about the operational side of corporate aviation, not just the you know, in a hangar, turning wrenches till all hours of the night uh, side of things, which is what I had experienced till that point. So now I'm, in, I'm working for a company that's a little more forward-facing. We've got customers coming in and out of our hangar. We've got clients uh, going to maintenance saying, hey, how can I upgrade this airplane? What can I do here? I, I want better audio video. I want this, I want that. Now we're interacting with these individuals that own these airplanes. You've got 
the operational side of things now, which is which is very reminiscent of squadron level, you know, trip demands, that's the trip, that's the milestone. Right. Can you have this airplane uh, back in service, yes or no? With a lot of pressure to say yes, right? Absolutely. That's what these companies thrive on, right? They have to say yes more often than no. Uh, but it was a wonderful, wonderful learning experience. Uh, I was there for a few years, and then I eventually got a job with a gentleman who was whose airplane was managed by that company, he wanted to break out into his own. And uh, he purchased a Citation 10, had a beach jet. He also purchased a small charter management company. Uh, the name of that company was called Aspen Executive Air. Now, now that takes us to 2003. Um, now I'm maintaining a couple airplanes for a high net worth individual, essentially performing the, the Solaris maintenance supervisor function. What I didn't know was that uh, in a short time, I would become the part 135 director of maintenance um, because of need and necessity. Uh, the individual that owned those airplanes purchased uh, this company. Uh, it was an old certificate out of bankruptcy. And we started a, call it a hybrid, sort of fractional charter, boutique charter business uh, with a uh, keen emphasis on the Aspen market. So now my sort of uh, ability uh, or opportunity to grow and learn was just, I mean, sky was the limit at that point. You work for small companies, oftentimes, they just want you to do the work. There, there was really not a lot of opportunity. I flipped over to the chartered company and, and you know the world was changing and we needed people that were a little more tech savvy and uh, whatnot. And then I moved over to another certificate where we were starting from scratch. I was actually their second employee. And in a few months, uh, I became the Part 135 DOM, and I got to construct systems, some of which are in place today here with Solaris. I got to, I got to write the book, I got to write the manual, I got to conform the airplanes, but I also got a lot of experience interacting with clients, project management, Part 135 operations, international ops, and, and, and so forth. And that took me, that takes me to about uh, 2008. Yeah. Well, you, you did it from the ground up, that's yeah. for sure. Now, were you just thrust in that position? Did you start taking night courses using your GI Bill? Did you have a mentor? You know, Eric, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I did. I did, uh, I did get an opportunity to use my GI Bill. When, when I was in the service, we had these wonderful electricians. And, and the, the rule of thumb was, you know, I was a mechanic, uh, a power plant technician. If, if, if there was something wrong with a piece of equipment, my job was to be able to remove and replace it, but I couldn't tell you if you know it was getting power and in, in, or if it was a power source failure or something to that effect. So we had these wonderful electricians. Uh, they would come out, remove the connectors, verify that there was power at the connector. Great, it must be the component. In comes the mechanic. We change the component. Electricians put power back on the component. You ops check it. You're done. Right. It's, it's essentially a two man job. So I learned a little bit about electrical while I was there, learning from these folks. But when I got out into the uh, private sector, uh, I quickly realized there was no handy dandy electrical shop right next door. Uh, right. You were it. And I realized that was probably my biggest weak point. I was really good at changing components and troubleshooting uh, hydraulic systems, fuel systems, and so forth. What I couldn't tell you was how to test out or ring out a resistor, a transistor. Uh, I couldn't tell you anything about logic gates and what they did. I mean, I was stuck. So actually, in, uh, in the early 2000s, I took uh, a curriculum at the local JC after hours to, to really come up to speed on, uh, on the electrical troubleshooting. Uh, one of the things I also noticed was, you know, the guys that were making better money than me were the guys that 
they, they brought up the schematics, they pointed to a couple things, and then you went and checked them, and then, uh, okay, it wasn't the first one, it was the second one. Right. You replace the component, and off you go. Easter egg hunting. So I wanted to be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> right. They were getting it done. They were getting it done. Uh, I took that curriculum, and that really, that actually was one of the best moves I could have ever made because it made me a very effective problem solver on an aircraft. I was working old King Airs, I was working Lears, uh, 35s, um, 31s, I was working Falcon 20s. Sure. I used to maintain G2 serial number two. Um, these were old analog airplanes where if you knew a little bit about electrical and you can chase down schematics and, and sub-assemblies, you could be very effective at returning aircraft to service. So I did that for about a year, took that curriculum, banked the GI Bill, uh, money and uh, it really catapulted my uh, my reputation as someone who can get things done. Yeah. So, well, how did you get prepared uh, to take over more of a managerial managerial role, executive I, level role? You know, uh, here at Solaris. No, beforehand. It, yeah, yeah. It, it just happened that way. Um, I, I I think uh, you know we get we get to the next company, Aspen Exec, and uh, we had a director of maintenance, and he and the uh, the president just could not get along. Um, plus, there was going to be a move that was going to require be required. So I just kind of reading the landscape, I realized that at some point I would be asked to do the job. Um, and sure enough, I was asked. And my comment to them was, I will do it to the best of my ability. I will do it for as long as we can, but I'm not the guy for that job. I'm 30 years old, 31 years old, right? And they were thinking of a, uh, a sort of a uh, card membership program with guaranteed availability and you know by X number of hours. and. Some of the airplanes were, were predicted to be very high utilization. And while I felt confident as a technician, I had no idea what the rest of it entailed. I, I, I sort of had an idea, but I, I just I couldn't grasp it. So I was asked to do the job on an interim basis. I interviewed a couple of folks that would have become my boss. And uh, about six months into it, my boss said, you know, we need to talk. We haven't found the right guy. And uh, he basically said, look, we put you in a hole. We expected you to fail and you've thrived in that condition under those conditions. And the other guys that we interviewed are no better than what you're doing today. So what would you think about taking the DOM position as a full-time, you know, remove the interim portion off of it and, and do the job? I was thrilled because uh, it, it, it's not what I wanted. It's not what I was looking for, but I was thrilled that somebody actually looked at me in that capacity and found me that capable. Um, I, I think a lot of it was just I, I, I'm the kind of person that... If I don't know something, I want to know it. If I don't know it today, I want to know it tomorrow. And the next time I encounter that, I want to know it cold. And if there's more to know uh, beyond that, I want to know it too. Um, so there was a little bit of a mystery to me for me in, on the managerial side and what it all entailed. And what I realized is I was applying myself. I was doing the job. I was learning every day. And if there was a mystery, I had a great set of resources that I could reach out to, figure out the, uh, the issue, and, and make an educated uh, decision and move forward. That's a great way to move on too, right? I mean, you look at that day in and day out and you, you, you don't really recognize it while it's going on necessarily. Right. A couple months right. into it, you look uh, look behind and go, hey, I figured that out. Figured it out. What's bite, next? Off, yeah. bite off more than you can chew than chew it. Than yeah. chew it, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's hilarious way for sure. Yeah. Renee, tell us a little bit about your uh, your transition here to Solaris and you know up to sort of present day. Yeah, no, it was great. Uh, you know, the, if if I made some really smart decisions early on, um, the best decision I could have made for myself career-wise was coming to Solaris. Uh, I was working with a gentleman named John Gallagher uh, at Aspen Exec. John uh, used to work for Dan at, at uh, Sunset LLC. 
And when uh, our old company, Aspen Exec, went under, John connected me with Dan. Uh, basically said, not sure what those guys are looking to do, but it sounds like they're, they're trying to plan the next phase of what Sunset Inc., LLC, possibly Solaris, will look like. You should give them a call. Uh, I did. I called Dan, and uh, a short time later, I got a call back from Greg Peterson, and that was, uh, I want to say, November, December, early December of 2008. Uh, that led to an interview uh, here in Petaluma in January, and that led to me coming on full-time in February of, uh, of 2009. They hung out in the shingle in March of 2009. Yeah. So you, uh, yeah. I got here for, right for, here I got the, here for the fun. I got here for that. I got, I got, the, I got a taste of Jet Direct. I got to partake in the misery that everybody else was uh, was uh, enduring. I, I got stiffed uh, a couple paychecks from Jeff Direct like everybody else did. Um, and it actually was, you know what, it was a good time to come in because uh, a short time later we wiped the slate clean and uh, we, we, we kind of laid out a vision. And early on it was very choppy waters and every day brought a new challenge, a new twist, but um, it, it all worked out. We sorted it out. What would you say has been your most satisfying, uh, the most satisfying aspects of your your time here at Solaris? Oh, I think just seeing the growth. Um, I think the relationships I've built with everybody here on the executive team, um, you know, some of the some of the folks that we've hired over the years. I think all of it. I, I feel like to an extent, uh, at least a, a carve out of this company has my fingerprint on it. And to watch it grow, to watch it prosper, to see some of the good things we do for our people and some of the good things we do for our clients on, on a daily basis, I feel really good about that, really proud of that. Thanks for sharing those perspectives, Renee. Um, it's not often that we get to, to dig into the sort of the background and some of the context <laughs> behind all this. We're going to give you a pass on Chicago and the Cubs. I know that you're a diehard Red Sox fan uh, uh, at heart. White so, Sox fan. Uh, we're not going to hold. Uh, we're not going to hold Chicago against you. And you it know, was, it was Renee that told me it was uh, like the, only the tourists root for the Cubs. I couldn't believe it. Oh yeah, no, I mean, if you live in Iowa, move to Chicago, you're a Cubs fan. If you're a Sort of a diehard uh, Southsider is yeah. the White Sox. Steve doesn't have the Sox. He players. only has the Red Sox. He only has one Here team. we have A's and the yeah, Giants. We have White Sox. We don't have teams. We have dynasties. Let's be clear here. Uh, and I right. think I know. Yeah, I, was a, I was a Red Sox fan this year. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Anyone you know, just beat LA. So I grew up in Chicago when I was in high school. The uh, the ushering service that serviced White Sox, Bears, Blackhawks, Bulls came into our high school and asked uh, some of the teachers for volunteers, and I got volunteered for it. Um, I was blown away and actually got hired on. So I got to watch more Michael Jordan games than you can show oh, a stick at. A good I got to see a lot of Chicago Bears uh, games. Um, and a bunch of White Sox, Blackhawks games. That is the best way to do the it. The problem was, very smart company, they didn't pay you anything. Oh, yeah. And I mean, they paid you like $2 an hour. No, no, no. And by the, the time, honor is to be there. That's right. And by the time you bought a hot dog and a drink for lunch yeah, and paid for some bus fare. They made like, money off of you. Yeah, you had like four bucks <laughs> left over. <laughs> it was pocket change. And when uh, when December rolled around at Soldier Field, it all of a sudden wasn't that much fun. So. Yeah, yeah, bitter cold. Yeah. Yeah. So from hot dogs to cars to military jets, military jets, private jets to yeah. Solaris, to Solaris, yeah. yeah, yeah. What can you tell us, Renee, um, from your perspective? I mean, the industry ebbs and flows, and we're uh, we're in a, a cycle now that is um, uh, very interesting. And um, sure, we thought maybe we'd gain some perspective, um, your perspective on uh, 
you know, the status of the industry from, yeah. a, from a maintenance standpoint? Certainly, certainly. From, from a maintenance standpoint, the trend today is a lot of sort of rapidly evolving technology, both uh, on the aircraft and available to existing aircraft. You know, I, I, I get into corporate aviation in the early 2000s, and, and I was, you know, early 20s, still, or late 20s. Um, the airplanes were much older than I was. I mean, that old G2 I used to maintain predated my lifespan by several years. Those old Air 35s sort of fell under the same uh, the same category. This is, you know, mid-70s technology. Falcon 20s, great, all great airplanes. Love those airplanes, but you look at the technology behind those airplanes, and it dates back to the 60s, right? Really, the jet age. Uh, you know, an offshoot off of the uh, off of the Saber liners and the uh, you know the Lockheed products. Um, and for a long time, I thought I've always felt like we've been sort of locked into that, with the exception of evolving technologies up front. You know, the, the usage of HUDs and, and highly integrated avionics systems. I, I felt to some extent that airframe technology had lagged. Uh, and in reality, it was. I mean, most folks don't know, but a G550 is the same type certificate as a G1. So a G1 built in the 60s yeah. evolved to a 2, 3, 4, 5, 450, 550, et cetera, right? Now, drastically different airplanes, but what that tells you is that the design concept behind that aircraft dates back to the 60s. What are we seeing today? We're seeing Gulfstream design brand new clean sheet aircraft. I think everybody realized that that at some point people want new technology, not just in the cabin or in the cockpit, but new wing technology. They want uh, more redundant systems. They want safer systems. They want better fuel systems, and they want efficiency. Right? The, it's all about how big of an airplane, how fast can it go, and how little fuel can it burn. Right? And that all translates into the bottom line. What we're seeing today is we're seeing great advancements. Um, you know, from Dassault uh, started with Dassault and. The 7X, uh, fly-by-wire, one of the first corporate jets with fly-by-wire, 650, fly-by-wire, and a lot of new technology. What we're seeing is new entrants into the marketplace, um, the global 7500, 8500, and so forth. You know, it's it's really starting to take off. So what it means is very, very uh, automated uh, airplanes, very automated systems, much more redundancy. We're seeing technology in airplanes that we experience in our daily lives. And when we look at some of the gadgets and the tools that we use in our daily lives, we say, wow, this thing just works. Mm. And we're seeing that today in, uh, in aircraft uh, to some extent. So it's, it's a pretty interesting time. Um, I wouldn't say we're at a crossroads. I would say we're sort of turning a page where older airframes are starting to be retired in lieu of clean sheet designs. And I think it just, it's an exciting time. It's, it's going to be a lot of opportunity to learn uh, new aircraft, new systems, new way of doing things for the next 20 years, 30 years. Uh, sure. So it's, it's, it's pretty dynamic. You, you spend quite a bit of time, uh, Renee, you know, speaking with um, other folks in the industry and certainly even some prospective clients, um, some prospective owners. And yeah. what are you hearing from them? What, what, what sort of appetite? You know, here most oh, owners want functionality. Owners want uh, well. First and foremost, they want a safe aircraft. I mean, every owner I've ever interacted, and and, and at Solaris, I've done a lot of that, and it's it's one of the things I really enjoy. The baseline is always: is it a safe, reliable machine? Uh, you know, is it going to get me to point A from point A to point B very, very safely? Can we feel a high level and a high degree of confidence every time we embark on, on the next trip? 
And, and obviously in our world, the answer is always yes. Uh, the maintenance on the airplane and uh, everything that goes into operating these airplanes is, you know, the, the, the sole foundation is safety uh, and functionality. Uh, beyond that, what we hear from our clients, from our aircraft owners, is they want better functionality in the, in the cabin, right? They, they want good technology up front. They want to know that the crew members have, you know, the latest and greatest in many ways. Um, and again, most of these airplanes now are very automated. They have things like synthetic vision and HUDs and EVS and XM weather overlays and so forth. I mean, we've made some great advancements up front. Clients care about that. But secondarily, and almost as important as the safety and the, and the functionality is they, they really want to know that, you know, they can have the office in the sky, but they can have the same type of automation that they have at home in their, in their cabins. Uh, and that's one of the areas that has gotten a lot better over the last few years. And I believe will continue to get better as, uh, as these products get, uh, you know, new products come to market, um, you know, we're going to see where you continue to see uh, speed increases on uh, sure. on uh, data connectivity options. We're seeing right now one of the areas that uh, that's it's a little it's a little problematic is cabin management uh, and cabin management systems. And picture this: you own an airplane that's 10, 12 years old, right? It's a relatively new airplane, and somebody says, "Hey, if you really want better functionality, reliability, HD video, and..." Apple uh, iPad integration, you got to spend eight hundred thousand uh, dollars, a million dollars, some of these installations, right? It, it's it's problematic. There's gratification, right? It's it's an upgrade that a client is going to see and touch and feel every single day, but it's hard to wrap your head around the cost side of something, uh, and that's as basic as controlling the temperature, turning on the lights, turning off the lights, and controlling your uh, your audio video. So it wouldn't work for me, uh, Renee. I'm still driving around uh, the same 2006 yeah. Nissan Titan. If you bought a new, if you bought a forty million dollar jet, you would you would skip on that option. I'm listening to AM yeah. radio yeah. Yeah. occasionally. Well, that box the jet. good thing is that the forty million dollar jet already has that. Yeah. It's still an eight hundred dollar option. Eight hundred thousand dollar option for 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 some airplanes. It is, yeah. and it and it's a little. It, it's something that we have to grapple with. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the trends here over the last uh, seven or eight years is that new aircraft owners are jumping right into super mid and, 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 and large cabin aircraft. I'd never seen that before. Uh, my first phase of, uh, of my career, if a new aircraft owner bought a Hawker uh, or a Citation, it was like, wow, he bought a Hawker. He bought a midsize airplane, not a little tiny King Air or, or something to that effect. Today, you have first-time aircraft owners buying G450s and, and Challenger 605s. I mean, these are very capable, tried-and-true uh, aircraft. Um, they all want a little bit of paint. They all want to customize the interior, the carpet, and so forth. And some folks, some of our clients want, they want to do it all. They want new wood. They want all of it. Other clients are saying, you know, get me bang for the buck. Where should I spend my money? And obviously, it's better Wi-Fi. Um, the aesthetics, right? Things like carpet are pretty straightforward. You replace a carpet, it changes the look of the interior, it feels new now, etc. But if you have a client that has an older airplane and he's saying, you know, I'd really just like to watch a video or I'd like the moving map to be displayed on my iPad, the answer is a half a million dollars on up, right? It, there isn't an easy answer. If somebody wants carpet, you know, depending on the size of the airplane, it's a $40,000 problem, $50,000 problem. 
couple, tenfold. A couple tanks of gas, right? <laughs> a couple tanks of gas in your G450 and you have sure. your carpet, right? right? Or you have this or you have that. And I, I, I use the tank of gas scenario to put things in relative terms. If you had, a, Eric, uh, put an extra tank of gas in your car this month, ah, who cares, right? No big deal. So we have a $30,000 problem on an airplane. It's $30,000, it's a problem. But when you step back and look at it and you say, that's a tank of gas. Right. It isn't that big See of a problem. Force, right. But for the trees, which right. might be difficult if your first gen is first gen right. or G500. But when you say, Eric, you got to overhaul your uh, engine and transmission, and that's a $5,000 problem, that sort of becomes more like, hey, if you want to upgrade your uh, your audio video, that's a million dollar problem. Right. That's a bigger bump than anybody would expect. Right. Um, so, so that's an area that you know I'm hoping, and 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 I know that there's better technology coming to the marketplace um, that will hopefully bring those price price points down. But the reality is, those endeavors are very labor intensive, and I don't see a lot of relief in the, on that front. And speaking of um, you know some of the um, the systems and so forth, you've talked quite a bit during some of our client aviation manager calls um, about data connectivity, and you mm -hmm. mentioned it here today. Drill down there just a little bit for us. Well, what are you seeing uh, for the trends and where do you see this thing going in the next uh, five years? I see uh, the trend is this. Um, there, are, there are companies out there that have options for domestic and international that are well established. You can have those options tomorrow, assuming uh, you can get a slot and, uh, and a kit. Uh, the price points are the price points. There's not a, not a lot of variance. The service fees are the service fees. I see more products coming to market that are going to compete directly for, you know, air-to-ground type domestic-only uh, uh, options and satellite-based options for worldwide connectivity. Um, everybody wants it. Everybody wants, you know, there, there's a, a, a group of clients out there that if you said, you know, you get all the bandwidth and it costs X, you're not going to get to the point that it says that you, that you, that you tell them how much it costs. They're going to say, yes, get it, get it for me, right? There, there's, there's a subset of clients that are it's more important for them to be connected than the dollar figure surrounding uh, what that is. But the majority of our clients and, and clients that we advise are cost sensitive um, and they want, you know, good, reliable speed at a price point that doesn't break the budget, right? Um, a challenge, uh, G450, Flying uh, three to four hundred hours a year, you know, it's two and a half, three million dollar budget roughly. If your connectivity goes up a little bit, it's less than a percentage point of your total budget. It's not that big a deal. But but they want better speed and they want very reliable options. That's coming to market. There are companies today that are going to be delivering products to market that are that are going to compete with the existing products that are out there, which will ultimately be very very good for our clients. And that there's going to be options and. There's options out there. It means uh, the price points may come down a little bit. You talked a little bit about the front end, and um, you know, we know that in the industry we've got some regulatory requirements that are yeah. opening, and we also have uh, you know uh, opportunity. Talk to us a little bit about some of the uh, the system yeah. applications, uh, you know, front end wise. Sure, front end wise. I mean, uh, we've been dealing with uh, these mandates that have been on the calendar now for some time. Uh, luckily, we've had a lot of time to address this. And uh, the manufacturers, for the most part, stepped up early on and, and started to provide options. Uh, we have ADSB uh, domestically. Every jet airplane is going to have to have it, um, and there, there's no there's no way around it. It's a reality. You have to have it. 
Uh, for large cabin airplanes uh, that want to operate over the uh, North Atlantic tracks, we have uh, FAN CPDLC, which is essentially both of these systems make it to where your reporting and your communications with ground-based stations becomes automated, right? No longer having to chuck up a uh, uh, or keep a mic uh, or anything like that. It, it sort of becomes very seamless. And the reality is today, if you want to operate in, in the North Atlantic tracks, you have to have this equipment or you have to come up with these clever workarounds that basically put a, put a, put a principal in the cabin a lot longer, may incur an extra stop, et cetera. Um, we're actually in a really good spot right now in that the mandate for ADSB is a year away. It's January 2020. We pulled the numbers recently, and Solaris is at about 85% compliance. Um, those that don't have a compliant option installed today have a plan in place, and we have a few clients that, that still have not made a decision, primarily driven by uh, the suitability of options that are out there today. But I feel strongly that we'll be 100% compliant. Uh, that or some clients will have sold some of these airplanes uh, by the time we get there. CPDLC, uh, those options have been around for a little while now. And the reality is if you're a serious international operator and, and are really serious about Europe and preferred routing, you have CPDLC already installed. So. Can I back up a little bit? Mm -hmm. Earlier on, you said you were the type of individual who loves to learn. Yep. If they don't know something today, they're going to find out tonight, Yep. come back the next day. Yeah. It occurred to me that we hear a lot about pilot shortages and challenging with filing pilots who are rated on these newer aircraft. Sure. Or the owner not wanting to pay for them, trying to hunt for that one individual who wants to fly that plane in that market for this salary. Right. Just getting all those ducks to line up. Right. It's starting to occur to me that as the airframes are getting more advanced, as the cabin management integration systems are getting more advanced, mm -hmm. and I've seen a little bit of this on my end, just going out to photo shoots and watching a brand new aircraft, you know, brand new maintenance supervisor who's new to the aircraft, struggle to try to figure out how to turn the cabin lights on, being on tech support. Right. Are you seeing that on a maintenance supervisor side where people just aren't keeping up with the technology, are getting left behind? And I, is, that, is that exacerbating a maintenance supervisor shortage as well? Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I, I believe that, um, you know, good people are in high demand right now, period. Uh, regardless of what you're looking for, what flavor, what, what geographic area and so forth, really, really top-notch people are in high demand. Um, yeah, we're seeing a little bit of that, Eric, where these airplanes are so automated now that it requires a fundamental sort of shift in how you approach the aircraft. Um, and if we say, you know, old school way is you never call technical support until you've had the diagrams out and you've rung all these wires and you've done all these checks and yeah. you just can't put your finger on it. You call technical support and they maybe guide you through some additional steps or make a recommendation. Today, Gulfstream wants you to call them first, period. Um, the reality is if you if you subscribe to Plane Connect, Gulfstream knows about the issue right. at the same time your technician knows about the issue. The right? jet sends them the code. Correct. The crew knows about the issue because they, they see it, but that data is now streaming. It's being broadcast back to uh, Gulfstream Tech Ops, uh, maintenance tech, maintenance ops, and so forth. And it's just an annotation of what's going on, right? So, 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 yeah, the, the way you go about troubleshooting and, and addressing maintenance issues with these airplanes is very, very different. You have to learn the system. You have to learn the, uh, the diagnostic system on board the aircraft. And you have to, before you start throwing parts or chasing wires or whatnot, you really have to get the command center involved. They're tabulating all this data. They're seeing the trends and they're saying, if it's a nose wheel steering issue on that airplane, it's a nose wheel steering computer. It's not the nose wheel steering actuator. 
Um, so instead of the technician rolling out his toolbox and running a bunch of rudimentary checks, he's on the phone with tech ops. Tech ops is saying, here's our top three suspects and we would start in this order and we have uh, parts moving and we have a technician on his way if you want him to. So it's very different. Um, you know, that, that's more of a heart failure type scenario, something that's going to prevent the airplane from, uh, from going, continuing on to its next trip. From a day-to-day perspective, if we, if we think about it this way, um, in, in a traditional sense, you have a, a light in a closet and a switch, right? I mean, that's a very simple circuit, right? Uh, power, circuit protection, wires, switch, light bulb, ground, right? On, off, on, off. Today, that's a function of your, that can be a function of your cabin management system. So the light bulb not coming on when you push the button is much more complicated than just, do I have power, do I have ground, do I replace a light bulb? Um, you know, cabin upwash, downwash, lighting systems, uh, uh, tables in, in, in Gulfstreams that are electric that deploy, mm. that's all tied into your cabin management system. So you have to go through that system before you say, I've got a bad motor. Right. Unless somebody let the magic smoke out of that motor and you can yeah. smell it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Before you go after that motor, you better, you got to get into the cabin You're management software. side of things. Right. Yeah, never mind. A- another example, Eric. Or like the iPhones, use. you know, the Bombardier iPhones that control the management. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Another example I like to use is when, when we look at uh, flight management, uh, your, your traditional FMS, um, you know, in the early days it was a box. And it took inputs from uh, from several areas, but that was essentially your navigation, uh, your primary means of navigation, your FMS, GPS. You were lucky to have an IRS uh, or an IRU at that point, uh, maybe AHARS. But that was a box. And if that box stopped performing its function, a pilot could very easily tell you, you know, the scratch pad, the screen works, but otherwise it's not functional. Um, and hey, no big deal, right? Replace the box. Right, load a uh, database into it from the other box, and uh, it's good. Today, that Not box anymore. is a card that can be used in several different applications throughout the system. So when you go replace that card, you now have to install the card, but then you have to tell it what its role within the system is, and essentially assign it its IP address and tell it in this you're you're now working in the number three position, and this is your your function. That very same card can be used elsewhere. So it's very, very different. The days of like just replace the box and, and see where it goes, yeah. that, that's changing very, very quickly. Now are you seeing uh, veteran maintenance supervisors struggling with this these new aircraft as the owners upgrade? You know what? Um, not really. Um, I, I think what we've seen is, you know, some of these veteran guys um, have, we'll use Mr. Bob Menarch as an example because we love that guy. And he works um, for you directly now. So. What's that? He works for you directly now. That's right. He, and he works in our department now. Uh, you know, Bob went from a G4 to a G550 to a G650, and he made that transition seamless. Uh, I mean, just seamless because of the complexity of the aircraft that he was presently working on. Now, if we had a technician who was working, um, say, a Citation Excel, and all of a sudden the boss is saying, we're getting a 650, a 7X, we are saying, whoa, hang on a second. We have to invest some upfront dollars today into his training uh, or her training before before that person can touch that airplane. Um, it, it's really interesting. I, uh, I, I take uh, I take part in, in a lot of industry boards. And, and last year, we were gathered uh, around with a group of people. And we were talking about not necessarily the shortage, but the uh, age of our maintenance technicians and maintainers. 
average age as tabulated was mid-50s. Mm. When you think about that, you say to yourself, okay, that's airline, that's corporate, that's GA, mid-50s. We are not doing a good enough job of bringing young people into the mix. We need to bring more young people into the mix, right? We need that next wave of maintainers that really want to do this, that are passionate, that are coming out of A&P school, coming out of the military and coming into our sector, into the corporate sector. I'd say that's an area that we struggle in. It's a pretty unique skill set. Quite frankly, uh, as I mentioned earlier, starting off, it doesn't pay all that much. And some of these really young, sharp people are migrating into IT or other areas that pay a little better up front. Mm -hmm. So as an industry, I think, uh, I don't want to get preachy here, but I think we need to do a better job of drawing young people into our industry. We're going to need them. We're going to need them soon. And is it difficult for some avenues? Yeah. Is it difficult for someone to transfer from the military into this role in the civilian? You know, I think, to the pilots? I think it's gotten easier. Um, information age is great. I mean, I, uh, I was working with a young man here in the Bay Area who was uh, transitioning out of the military. Um, I was connected uh, to him by, uh, by uh, Leif Ekholm um, and uh, just having a conversation with him. He did not need my help. He needed a little bit of validation. He did not. You know, he knew where to go. He knew what he needed to do. He knew what the steps were. He needed a little bit of validation, and uh, I was able to connect him with one of our uh, primary inspectors. And I believe he's well on, on his way to get an AMP license. So it, it's different today. Um, you know, when I got out of the military, like I said, it was it was uh, late '90s. The internet was still crawling, and there wasn't a ton of information out there uh, like there is today. Today, I mean, it's a simple query. I mean, Siri will tell you what you need to do to get an AMP license now. Renee, you've um, you've identified a, a big challenge there and throughout the industry, mm-hmm. and um, you know there's a, obviously um, a number of um, of challenges you've uh, spoken to us about before. If you had to, you know, kind of characterize your top three or four uh, industry challenges, um, what would you say? You know, it's a couple. Uh, certainly, we talked about manpower. Um, looking for you know that next wave of young uh, maintainers to come into our ranks. Um, I would, I would consider that a challenge. I, I don't think we're doing enough there. Uh, I think we need to continue to draw young people into, uh, into our ranks. I think what's happening in the, job, in, in, in the job market right now helps in that, you know, you're, you're kidding yourself if you think you're gonna hire someone the way you did 20 years ago where this was a passion play for someone. They would do anything to get in the door. Um, today, people are saying, no, I, I really like aviation. I really wanna stay in aviation, but the economics have to work out. Which is good. It, it's good, right? It has to. It has to be a sustainable endeavor for folks to, to get into our business. Um, that's certainly a challenge. I, I think the other challenge we're seeing right now, uh, quite frankly, with the mandates that we spoke about, data connectivity options, cabin management systems that are uh, that are now available that are pretty uh, integrated. Right now, today, one of the biggest challenges is uh, getting airplanes um, into these facilities. You know, the more reputable facilities for heavy refurb type work. Avionics especially. Avionics, not long ago I would get calls from some of our, our, of our MROs and they would say, hey, we have an opening and we're wheeling and dealing on anything avionics for the next two weeks. We would reach out to some folks internally. I want to do Wi-Fi. Great. I can get you a 20% off deal on a Wi-Fi installation. You got to move the airplane tomorrow. That was a very real scenario a few years ago. Paint, same thing. Uh, today, nobody has those openings. Today, the backlog is, you know, Yep, we can start in March, we can start in April. It's, uh, it's gotten that tight, and it's gonna stay very, very tight for the next year as we, get, as we approach the mandates. 
I think while we as a company have done really well, uh, mostly because of our client base wanting to really stay ahead of things and do things the right way, there are a lot of people out there that have no plan for ADSB. Uh, I mean, no plan. And I think the calendar is going to sneak up on a lot of folks. The server centers are going to be jammed, and some folks may have to park their airplanes until they can clear that backlog out a little bit. Not a good picture there. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. Look, you've been really generous with your time. Thanks for uh, sharing those insights. Um, you know, is there anything else you'd like to share with the, the team out there in the Solariverse? Um, yeah, just what I, what I tell everybody. Uh, you know, we're here to support everyone, uh, all of our folks that are out-based. I, I get the, uh, the pleasure and uh, the luxury of interacting with uh, the overhead folks in Petaluma and, and sporadically with some of the folks out in the field as I travel. Uh, but, but really, I mean, what I tell everybody every time we meet is call us if you need anything. We're, we're here for you guys. Um, you know, anything of any nature, uh, you know, we want to make sure that everybody out there succeeds. And if sometimes we can throw our weight uh, behind an endeavor uh, to do so, we're glad to do it. So uh, that's what I would tell our folks. Thanks, Renee. And uh, hats off to uh, all of our Solaris maintenance professionals for what they bring to the table day in and day out. And while this podcast is not um, tailored specifically for that group, I just uh, we'd like to give them a shout out. Yeah, um, absolutely. We got a great team, Steve. I mean, we have some of the best people in the industry. Absolutely, yeah. and that uh, that extend that all the way across the entire crew yeah. uh, complement that are out there in the field. Yep. Thanks everybody for tuning in to um, our podcast series. Renee Cervantes, <laughs> Senior Vice President here at Solaris for technical services. Thanks for your time. We look forward to teeing up another podcast and we'll drill a little bit deeper into one of these categories or another. Very good, very good. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Eric. This is fun. Thank you for listening to the Solaris podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcast at solaris.arrow. Thanks again.